Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Fred Olayli, who is the Chief Economist and Head of the Economic Research and Policy Group with New York Economic Development Corporation. He oversees economic research and policy initiatives aimed at making New York City the global model for inclusive growth and innovation. He is also a research professor at the Sprout School of Business in Carleton University in Canada. Welcome, Fred. Thank you very much, Jill. Nice to be here. Yeah, so I want to start with one of your older papers, uh, which is you know, sort of discussing a framework. It's entitled Economic Diversity and the Resource Curse, a Dynamic Panel Model. Um, yeah, and you say that the paper contributes the debate on the impact of economic diversity and the resource curse on economic growth. Um, and you use dynamic panel data models on data on Canadian and U.S. subnational jurisdictions. Uh, before we get into this, Fred, um, what exactly is the resource curse? Uh, well, thank you very much again, and I'm pleased to join you. You know, uh, this is an interesting um, platform, and I hope we can um, take a deep dive into some of these issues. Sure. Yeah. So the resource curse is um, it's just the paradox, you know, that explains why certain countries and regions mm-hmm. that are rich in natural resources, why they tend to have less uh, growth, mm. or, or let's say why they tend to have dismal economic performance compared to uh, comparators or other countries or regions yeah. that do not have resources. And uh, in the literature, you know, it has uh, become very popular to explain the cause, you know, through uh, both economic and uh, political uh, institutional arguments. Yeah, so in the paper you say, Fred, um, so the resource curse uh, may be stated as it's a paradox that countries with an abundance of natural resources, so we are talking about natural resources uh, that can be mined and so on, 
and they tend to have less economic growth than countries with fewer natural resources. So that is a paradox, right? That's correct. Yeah, it's a paradox because, of course, in traditional uh, economic discourse, yeah. when you look at the factors of production, you know, it's very intuitive that regions that have more resources, you know, inputs, say labor, capital, you'd expect that to help the production process, you know. So yeah. if you think about uh, natural resources as some form of input into the production process, how then do you explain the fact that regions or jurisdictions with a lot of resources not, you know, uh, nothing to show for, for such endowments. So it's obviously a paradox. And so, that- so they grow uh, slower compared to other countries. And the, you say uh, there are a couple of explanations or attempted explanations for it. One is an economic argument and the other is a political institutional argument, right? So what is the economic argument for that? Yeah, so the, 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 the basic economic argument for the resource cause is uh, what economists call the Dutch disease. Mm. You know, and the Dutch disease is, uh, is basically a situation where you have a diminished uh, manufacturing sector yeah. as a result of uh, the crowding out effect of mm. uh, the extractive uh, sector. Okay, so, so the, it's... Uh... It's a bit like if you have a country with a lot of copper, uh, a natural resource, um, all, the, all the sort of the focus of the country is going to be mining out copper and, and not really manufactured goods out of copper. They, they probably typically just sell it, right, to somebody else? Uh, exactly, yeah. They tend to focus on the resources and then because of the... A low productivity that comes with uh, primary goods, you know, mm. it's often very hard to leverage efficiencies and, and high productivity that comes with high value adding uh, production. Yeah. So we think about this, you know, from like a, a small open economy model, like you say in economics. Mm. When you are looking at an open economy model, you find out that uh, a non-tradable sector, which is typically a service sector, you know, the nuances of what you see there will be different than a tradable sector where services or, or their output, you know, can pass through processes that can enable you to trade those. Hmm. Okay, okay. And so, so that's the economic argument. You cite a few papers here. Uh, there has been a lot of studies around this. Uh, and it, it sort of makes intuitive sense uh, when you have a lot of minerals, uh, mineral-rich deposits and so on. That's what you focus on, but it is in sort of in exclusion of other things that the country could do. Um, so that's one explanation. The other explanation is the political institutional explanation, right? So what, what is that? Yeah, it's actually very interesting, you know. And before I, before I actually talk about the political uh, institutional dimension, yeah. I will quickly say that the whole notion about uh, the resource cost is actually uh, caveated, you know, there are caveats hmm. because uh, the pioneers in this field, you know, Sachs and Warners, back in the day, you know, their seminar paper, you know, was very uh, well received in the literature. Hmm. But over time, you found that other researchers came up to uh, contend that in actual fact, you know, there are many other factors mm. 
can serve as the transmission mechanism for the cost. Right. So, so look at countries like uh, Botswana in Africa. You look at countries like Canada, you know, these are countries with a lot of natural resources. Right. And yet, they have a lot to show for the resources in terms of well-being, in terms of uh, growth, and what happened. Uh, and when you look at the poster um, countries for the resource cause, like mm-hmm. Nigeria, like Venezuela, you know, like um, other, you know, resource-intensive uh, economies, yes. you find that they don't have a lot to show for it. So in a way, there is some sort of a, a conundrum. Mm. So we always like to put a caveat that the political institutional uh, channel explains mm. why some countries are successful where others you know, fail to make significant leaps in terms of uh, shared prosperity and moving their, their citizens out of poverty. Yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, so what you're saying, Fred? Then you know, the it's not an automatic thing. Um, uh, it's so you, we we can see some countries, like you say, Canada doing pretty well. One some countries like Venezuela not doing that well, and so just the economic argument doesn't necessarily hold good for the entire cross section. So that's why the the political institutional dimension might be important, right? Ah, uh, yes. And I can even go further to say that when you talk about the uh, political angle, the institutional angle, then you start to look at the importance of institutions mm. in regions and jurisdictions where you have strong institutions, and then you find that those institutions are able to inhibit, you know, or lessen the rent-seeking behavior that you find from lobbies and other uh, agents that are not really contributing to the real sector. So a very nice way to summarize the political institutional uh, argument is that in jurisdictions where there are strong institutions, like in Canada, like in the United States, like in Australia, like in Botswana, you find that they are able to uh, make significant leaps, you know, and bounce through their resources because you have those institutions helping to really, you know, reduce corruption and other wastages. But in regions where institutions are weak, say because of corruption or civil wars or dictatorship and what have you, then it becomes very hard to uh, escape the cost. Right. Um, You also say, though, um, I think this is another uh, uh, paper by Ross, uh, you say while corruption rent-seeking are less prevalent in developed countries compared to their developing counterparts, uh, Ross cautions that resource-dependent jurisdictions may tax their residents less heavily and in turn taxpayers um, may be indifferent to politicians' accountability and representation. And so there could be cases uh, where we don't expect a lot of corruption, uh, but it might still act in the in that fashion because uh, people don't really care. Absolutely. And that's the, that's the very interesting thing about this uh, whole paradigm. Mm. In the early uh, days of the model, you know, a lot of focus, a lot of attention was really on uh, cross-country analysis. But over time, uh, researchers, you know, and scholars in political economy and development 
have begun to look at subnational data, you know. Mm. So researchers have tended to look at states and provinces, you know, to see what uh, insights, you know, could be shared. And then you find that in subnational jurisdictions, you know, especially in, in the developed world, mm. find that jurisdictions that are really resource abundant tend to be complacent when it comes to uh, taxes and other uh, revenue generating activities. In fact, in certain jurisdictions, you see uh, policymakers and politicians, you know, not really, you know, maybe charging some taxes and other things. Right. And right. also see the notion of um, uh, uh, heritage, uh, heritage funds or sovereign wealth funds, you know, which are created to help mitigate the effects of shocks, you know, during uh, uh, exogenous shocks. Mm. So the summary of my argument, there is, when you look at subnational analysis, there is a tendency for some of these jurisdictions to not be too aggressive when it comes to raising, generating revenue from mm. tax, you know, and uh, over time, it's become a pattern, you know, that when the boost, when the boom happens, mm. there's a lot of relaxation. But when there is a bust, everybody's back on the table, you know, because <laughs> what interventions can help to, to balance the budget. Right, right. And so, so you then, in the paper, connected with uh, economic diversification. And so... Uh, export diversification is associated with higher long-run growth. Uh, however, resource exporters are different in many dimensions, and these differences will shape diversification priorities and policies. So, um, so talk a bit about what you mean by diversification and how would you measure that? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, and I'll just start by saying economic diversification is perhaps one of the most recurring uh, themes in public policy debates. Mm. When you look at uh, economic theory, uh, competitiveness is the outcome of specialization through uh, trade openness. And if I go back to theory, I think about the neoclassical theories and you know uh, other models that have really explained the concept of comparative advantage, mm. which basic framework for understanding how specialization and trade patterns, you know, account for productivity differences. So the way to think about uh, diversification is that the returns to economic sectors are often highly variable mm -hmm. with varying degrees of risk and costly adjustments to consumption. So this explains why too little diversification could be risky. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you will find that most policymakers cannot just afford to take their eyes off diversification, despite the many benefits that come with uh, uh, the opposite of diversification, which is our specialization. Mm. So we often talk about the concept of uh, the efficiency arguments that come with uh, specialization. But my point here is, despite the efficiency argument for, for specialization, diversification has become a major tool that enables policymakers to mitigate the effect, you know, the right. impact of uh, economic shocks. 
And, and this has major implications for, for the real sector. And, yeah, so, so and more the, broadly for, for policy yes. to the extent that uh, the employment and uh, output mix can, can help to lessen the impacts of uh, economic vulnerability. Yeah, so the, it's very interesting, Fred. So the, in the paper, you are trying to connect uh, what we discussed first, which is the, the resource curse problem. So you, get, you have some proxy for you know, resource endowment for a country such as mining as a share of GDP or mining as a share of total employment, perhaps. And then you have some control variables such as educational attainment, um, maybe you know, some capital stock endowment and so on. So uh, what I think, uh, if I understand this correctly, what you're trying to accomplish is to ask the question, how do these two things interact with each other? These two things, meaning um, the, the resource curse that we discussed and then specialization uh, or diversification, uh, economic diversification. How do these two things interact with each other and then what implications they might have for policy, right? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Very well uh, said. Uh, so in, in economic modeling, we often talk about control variables, you know, yeah. Uh, so when you are trying to model a scenario, you include certain uh, variables to serve as control. So in this paper, what we have done is really to uh, include educational attainment, you know, as a proxy mm. for institutional quality. And when you look at uh, educational attainment, you know, in fact, you have very robust discussions and a lot of papers that have really laid the foundation for the role of uh, education and skills, you know, and knowledge and innovation in the production process. Mm. That means is educational attainment is included in our model to help to capture, you know, skills and other qualitative aspects yeah. of the stock of uh, our human capital. Right. The other uh, control variable, of course, is a uh, physical stock. Yeah. A number of researchers will interpret physical stock, you know, by maybe infrastructure or, or investment, you know, or other important uh, uh, variables that in essence capture uh, what we call capital accumulation, you know. So in the model, you are, you are taking capital accumulation and skills, you know. Those are two important variables that not only serve as controls, you know, but they are also very good proxies for yeah. institutional quality. And, and barring any uh, causality or, you know, uh, endogeneity, you can, you can safely conclude that, that regions that uh, have high educational attainment and quality infrastructure tend to also uh, rate very highly, you know, on the economic performance um, spectrum. Right, right. And so, so if growth is uh, the variable that you're trying to estimate, um, you, have, um, you, you have resources, you have educational attainment, you have infrastructure. Um, some of those are control variables. And basically asking the question, can we actually find a relationship between growth and uh, the resource richness of the country, right? So what, what did we, so what did you find in terms of conclusions from the study? Yeah, so I'll put it this way. 
there are two arguments, there are two basic uh, research questions in the paper. Yeah. The first uh, question is, uh, how does how does resource endowment impact um, on growth? You know, what's the relationship yeah. between resource endowment and economic performance? Yeah, so if you just look at resource curves, uh, we, would, we would anticipate a negative relationship. Yeah, but that's yeah, correct. Can, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's correct. So that's the first leg of the argument. Yeah. We try to first establish uh, the presence of a cost. Yeah. And after doing the modeling and simulations, you know, and then we jump to the second argument, which is, if there's a cause, you know, to what extent does the presence of uh, institutional quality or to what extent do strong institutions prevent the prevalence of the cause? And that's actually the more interesting a question in the research because step back a second and look at the data. I'm not looking at countries in the global south. I'm concentrating on two developed economies, Canada and the US. Mm. So a lot of things are already taken for granted. Canada and the United States are two of the most advanced countries on the planet. So, but when you look at them from a subnational perspective, my question then is. How do we look at uh, how do we look at uh, certain subnational characteristics? You know, they are very significantly between both countries, despite their many similarities. And then I'm using I'm using the heterogeneity in those samples, you know, and the undeserved factors to capture the effect of natural resources on growth through transmission mechanism that. We say it's being represented by uh, the quality of institutions. Yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting things, uh, Fred, about um, you know, in the conclusions is that you say the required diversity threshold for not having the resource curse is given by 0.21. So you you have you know some sort of a threshold. Uh, you say above this threshold, the marginal contribution of natural resources to economic growth is lower for a relatively more diversified regional economy than a less diversified one. So the policy implication is, as you say, that regional economies that are too diversified are, are the ones in which resource abundance is harmful to per, per capita income. So that is sort of counterintuitive, right? Yes, it's counterintuitive. And you would also find that um, you will find that diversity itself in the paper is modeled, you know, using five different indexes. And yeah. five indexes, you know, vary across a wide margin. So when you look at the policy implications, you've got to really read those with caution. Yeah. Why? Why? Because in the modeling, we are trying to estimate a conditional growth model to explain what you see in per capita income variations. Not just that, we have also tried to use an interaction term between natural resources and diversity. So it is that single variable, the interaction term, that helps to identify whether 
diversification can influence or actually reduce the impact of the resource costs. So if you step back a second, yeah. you will then realize that to the extent that those diversity indexes are highly, highly variable, there's a wide degree of variability, then mm -hmm. you've got to really read the conclusions with, um, with caution because of the sensitivity analysis reveals that they are highly sensitive to the construction of the indexes and other underlying factors, you know, which are, of course, included in the technical uh, portion of the paper. Yeah. So, so let me ask you a qualitative question, Fred. I won't hold you to it. So yes, I just uh, trying to look for your, you know, sort of intuition. So after done this analysis, where do you come out? Um, is is that you know sort of the threshold uh, when you have very high diversification? And, and rich uh, abundance in natural resources, uh, you know, you tend to have lower economic growth. Does it, uh, does it sound right to you qualitatively? Sorry, can you say that again? Um, so I'm just wondering where you come out, you know, more qualitatively on this question. Is uh, higher diversification a good thing or a bad thing for um, natural resource, resource abundant economies? I, I, I guess you've you've answered uh, part of the question to the most um, uh, part because for a region that is highly diversified, then mm -hmm. going back to say that it has a lot of natural resources, that means you are inferring specialization. So so the major takeaway then is that before you go into the policy arena before you start to look at interventions, you know, based on uh, this paper or related papers, it is important for policymakers to go back to the drawing board and take a snapshot of the economy over mm -hmm. different time periods. You know, you've got to look at structural dynamics. You know, how has the structure of the economy evolved over time? It's not a one-size-fits um, conclusion or, or recommendation here. The most yeah. important thing that we're trying to um, gauge or say in this paper is that our approach, the modeling approach, helps to really shed light on the static versus dynamic impact mm. of diversification. That's the major takeaway. When you see some... Researchers and scholars, they use models and techniques that focus a lot on the static components. Mm. Others have realized the need to deploy dynamic models. And that's why I really leverage uh, dynamic panel models, the GMM, uh, system MMs, to capture all of the dynamic um, um, aspects of, of, of the discourse. Okay, so, so I guess the bottom line then, Fred, is there are a lot of moving parts. And so uh, sort of the, the simplistic views of diversification and resource curves, or even the interaction between them, the simplistic views coming out of static models uh, may not be appropriate from a policy perspective. Uh, fantastic. That's a very good way to, to summarize it, yeah. And okay, okay. one more piece, that so, de despite the many flaws, you know, of the basic right. theories and models, 
that explain uh, the theories that explain specialization, you find that while competitiveness in today's global economy is very key, opportunity costs remain a major driver of specialization. So at those days when you just close your eyes and say, oh, it's about diversification. No, you've got to really sit down and look at a wide spectrum, you know, in your policy mix before you uh, jump into conclusion as to what uh, the optimal mix is going to be for, for a particular regional uh, economy. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, in economics, you can always find um, data <laughs> that, will, uh, that will prove or disprove any hypothesis you're trying to do. And <laughs> Absolutely, you know, it's all about the underlying, uh, the model and the assumptions, you know. Yeah, it yeah. depends on what you are trying to really achieve. This is not a policy-heavy paper, you know. The emphasis really is on the techniques and the models and to really explain the high variability, you know, depending on the modeling techniques and the assumptions on the uh, diversity indexes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important, Fred, which is, you know, the, the, the real takeaway is um, to, to make policy, we really have to think through um, many, many different things. And they're not static, as you say. They also show high variability. So any hypothesis testing that is based on some static set of numbers is not appropriate from a policy perspective. You know, it, it, it is a, I think it's a very important, uh, important thing because we tend to do that quite often. I agree. I agree. And that has, uh, it's why you've seen many pitfalls, you know, in the whole policy design and recommendation um, spectrum. It is very important to know that when you are designing policies, you know, of yeah. course, you look at your ex- uh, anti issues and the implications for exposed realities. But at the end of the day, you know, there are always uh, unintended consequences. And until you have like a general equilibrium type outlook where all of the pieces are captured, uh, you've got to really be careful before you um, generalize or give a one size fits all um, uh, conclusion, you know, right, about, right. about economies. Yeah. Yeah, let's jump into another paper. Uh, it's entitled Gravity, Borders, and Regionalism, a Canada-U.S. subnational analysis, uh, in which you examine the extent to which trade costs influence the magnitude and direction of both East-West and North-South trade in Canada and the United States. Um, you say with the aid of an alternative framework which pays attention to key estimation issues in the gravity literature, we garner further evidence and support of a decline over time in the home bias syndrome. So first of all, uh, what, is, what, what do you mean by gravity here? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Where the gravity model is, uh, it's a popular model in, in uh, international trade, which actually derived uh, its name from, uh, the whole concept about uh, Newton's law of gravitational attraction, right? Yeah. So basically, we try to extend that law in physics, you know, to economics, hmm. whereby you say that the force of uh, attraction between two masses is directly proportional 
to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to the inverse of their distance. So right. take that law in the physical realm and extend it to economics. And then we like to say that uh, the, 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 the extent, the magnitude you know, of trade flows you know, between two jurisdictions is directly proportional to uh, the product of their economic sizes, which in this case we like to proxy with GDP, you know, some yes. analysts will use population, and inversely proportional to um, their distance. Of course, you look at it from an intuitive perspective that the further countries are, are away from each other, you know, the, the less is uh, the volume of trade flows that you see. So, mm. so all that to say that physical distance, uh, uh, and other forms of uh, other distances that you can imagine, you know, often contribute to uh, commerce. Such distances could be language, colonial heritage, uh, same, uh, maybe same currency, and so on and so forth. Hmm. The central model is the workforce, actually, in, in trade modeling that helps to really uh, bring all of the pieces together. Okay. Okay. So, so just like Newton's law of uh, gravitation, you you say the force is a function of the masses of the two bodies and the distance between them, the square of the distance, uh, divide, you know, the masses divided by the square of the distance, and uh, it makes sort of intuitive sense to say there are uh, the the trade that you expect between two economies uh, is proportional to the size of those economies, just like masses. Uh, and then it is inversely proportional to the cause of trade. Um, and so, you know, the, the simplest cost would be the distance between them, right? The further away they are, the more transportation costs and, and all of that. Uh, but like you say, the cost may represent a lot of other things like language, culture, style, uh, GDP per capita that might proxy uh, where the economies are in terms of development and so on. Uh, but but generally speaking, it's the size of the economies uh, divided by the, the cost to trade between them. That is what we see, right, in total trade. That's very correct. Uh, that's very correct. So in that sense, you are uh, using a, a wide range of uh, factors to model uh, distance, what we also call trade cost, you know, yeah. I think I, I think you you capture that, you know, language, uh the presence of borders, contiguity, you know, and so on and so forth, you know. Uh, which is very intuitive. I mean, look at the volume of trade between Canada and the US and yeah. compare that with the volume of trade between the US and say a country that is, you know, in the global south. It's it's pretty intuitive. Of course, it's much more complicated when you start to uh introduce other nuances like multilateral. Resistance, you know, counterfactuals, you know, and other uh, technical details. But in a very simplistic fa fashion, you know, this is a model that has become uh, uh, the workforce, you know, for really modeling how trade costs uh, drive trade flows. Yeah, so I want to really dig deeper into that, uh, Fred. So uh, Canada and the U.S., um, one of the articles here says uh, interprovincial interprovincial trade is 22 times larger than the state province trade. Um, and so, what is interprovincial trade? This is trade between two provinces in in Canada. 
that's correct. Don't forget the the a framework for the paper. You know, again, yeah. it's a it's a subnational framework. So pretty much, we are really looking at Canada and the U.S., but not from a cross-country perspective. But rather, we are focusing on the 50 states in the U.S. and the 10 uh, provinces in Canada. Okay. And, and let me step back a second and give you some context. Yeah. In terms of uh, landmass, Canada is bigger than the U.S. <laughs> right, right. But but uh, not a lot of people live up north. Exactly. And <laughs> for a country that's bigger than the United States in terms of uh, landmass, just got about 33 to 34 million people mm. compared to the 33, 40 million in the U.S. Right. Another context here is the population and the economy of Canada is approximately the same as that of California. Mm. You know, so but in the whole jargon of gravity and modeling, you try to say that when you control for other factors, like distance and other barriers, you want to be able to use the model to predict trade flows. Mm. And then before you knew it, you know, uh, John uh, McCallum, you know, was actually the guy who uh, was a pioneer, you know, and came up with the concept of the home buyers in trade proposal. Yeah. It was a, that was a seminal study, you know, that really came to explain the fact that trade between or among provinces in Canada, hmm. 20 times higher or larger than uh, trade with others when you control for other determinants of trade. Yeah, so, so the, the trade between Canada and the U.S., if I understand this correctly, is, uh, is 120th the, the, the rate of trade between uh, two provinces in Canada. It's, it's nuanced, you know, there are so many, there are so many... Um... It depends on what province you're talking about. So this talking is about. average, average expectation, right? Yeah, but the best way to capture this is you often look at uh, provinces that maybe perhaps share, I mean, provinces and states that share borders, you know. So in the West Coast, you try to look at a province like British Columbia, you know, and yeah. compare what is happening with, say, Oregon or or Washington State, you know. Mm. And then you go to the East Coast, you look at, say, Ontario and uh, uh, New York or other states that are very close by. Yeah. So, so from a layman's perspective, you would think that if I can get an item in Canada, you know, if it's $1 higher, you know, am I willing to cross the border to get it in the States? But the point we are making here is there's always the home bias argument. It's not as simplistic as these models show, because before you probably leave Vancouver to go to uh, Seattle, you know, it's going to be much more than some marginal differential that will get right. you to cross the border, you know. And that's what the uh, uh, home bias argument is trying to explain in a non-technical uh, um, sense. Yeah, so it's not necessarily a bias. Basically, it's saying there is a cost to trade across the border, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. there's a cost, you know, and those costs are not as uh, simplistic as models show, you know, because it's more nuanced. And uh, even when we talk about the concept of a flat world, even if our borders were to disappear, you know, there are still a lot of other nuances that would... Uh, 
make a case for within country trade. Right. And this is not an issue here between U.S. and, and, uh, and Canada. Um, most of the most of Canada uh, language also plays into it. Right. So we would see very different things between France and Germany, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this is a pretty it's a pretty universal model. In fact, yeah. when you talk about trade flows, you know, uh, between jurisdictions, it's perhaps like the first model that comes to uh, that comes to the table because of the applicability, the relevance, and uh, some of the major technical uh, flaws, you know, are well documented in the literature, you know, especially multilateral resistance, uh, heterogeneity, and issues around endogeneity, you know. And once uh, the proper models and techniques are employed, you know, it, it seems to give a pretty good um, representation or reflection of what you see when it comes to our predictive analytics and ability to, to simulate uh, what we can expect in, in reality. And of course, right. of course, the major uh, focus, even though the paper is on Canada and US trade and the dynamics, I'm more concerned about the implications for, for equality, for inclusive development, growth, and what have you. That's like the natural extension for, for the paper. Yeah, so so I want to understand this. So you, you say in border effect, you say, while it may not be correct to conclude that borders constitute significant barriers to trade that should be removed, research shows that the intensities of economic exchange within and across borders are remarkably dissimilar for one simple reason. Economic linkages are much tighter within rather than among nation states. And so it is not just the existence of borders, it is really how business is done, if I understand that correctly. Uh, that's fair, that's fair to say, you know, it's fair to say, um, again, as you say it, when you start to control for cross-country differences, there's always that tendency to uh, have certain factors within country, whether it be weather or the culture, or institutional framework or, or other uh, unobservables. Remember when you are doing modeling, there are many factors that are not, you cannot directly observe them. So yeah. you've, got, you've got to then set up your model to look for some ways to capture those unobservable factors. Right, so right. The implication then is to the extent that a country is a sovereign nation with so many factors that are country specific, all of those factors added together, you know, explain why um, modeling distance, contiguity, you know, international and international trade, it's a complex uh, exercise. And to really depict reality, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of the models that help to explain those influences often have their uh, drawbacks or pitfalls. Right, right. And, you know, just just very quickly, you, you find that, you know, just uh, I thought it was an interesting thing to think about. Uh, bilateral distance reduces trade by 1.1% for every percentage increase in the distance itself. So, so just like gravity, um, we do find distance proxying pretty well to that cost uh, of trade. Absolutely, and in the whole in the whole uh, uh, modeling uh, environment, 
you know, when you calibrate your model and you start to do comparative statics and the analysis, the first thing you try to test is the baseline model. You want to quickly look at the elasticities, you know, and if for any reason they are not uh, within range, then you probably have second thought to look at the model to see what is uh, what might have gone wrong. So, correct to say, you know, the distance elasticity is yeah. uh, a very important factor that helps you to gauge sensitivity and the robustness of models and, and uh, related factors before you start to then extend the analysis to other factors of interest, maybe exchange rates or a new trade policy or, or, or other factors of interest. But very fundamentally, you know, yeah. economic size and distance, you've got to really uh, capture those at the baseline level before you extend the model to capture other factors of interest. Yeah, so one of the important insights out of the paper is that when you look at Canada and the U.S., for example, one partner is about one-tenth the size of the other. Uh, the border effect is going to be more pronounced for the smaller partner. Uh, you say an estimated within-country border effect of 43.5% for interstate trade compared to 1.92% for interprovincial trade shows that the border effect is more pronounced in Canada than in the U.S. So from a policy perspective, um, whatever policies are going to be put in place that might affect trade, Canada is going to be disproportionately affected by it. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, that's correct. And the, the, the natural response to that is Canada is a small, open economy. People often tend to think that the U.S. does more trade than Canada. But if you look at it per capita, no. Canada is a trade-dependent uh, economy. And because of its uh, relatively uh, smaller economic size, that means that you expect trade policy shocks to affect a country like Canada more disproportionately. Yeah. That even becomes more important when you look at how uh, recent anti-trade sentiment and uh, protectionism, you know, how they have really impacted countries like Canada more than uh, bigger economies. Because, right. again, the nature of small open economies are such that they are more susceptible to shocks, which tend to be very, very uh, distortionary and in most cases have asymmetric uh, impacts. So that's the point we are trying to make there, that to the extent that policymakers in both countries are trying to manage cross-border policy traders, you know, a small open economy has to be more conscious about the productivity differentials and other uh, asymmetric shocks that may impact uh, policy design and, and, uh, and trade policy in general. Right, right. Yeah, so I want to get into a paper that you're working on, Fred, that, um, that hasn't been published yet. Uh, and, uh, and you're looking at uh, trade globalization-related uh, economic dislocations and related social costs, right? So you want to talk a bit about, um, you know, we, we talked about trade and we talked about some of the models that might impact it, but uh, more generally, how trade and associated costs impact society. Oh yes, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, research. Uh, as you know, 
globalization and, and technological progress, you know, have been largely blamed for much of the inequality that we've witnessed in the last uh, three decades. Yeah. Uh, and the rapid pace of trade globalization and, and, the and the income inequality that we've witnessed, you know, mm. those things have far-reaching impacts on economies and societies with huge social cost of adjustment. Mm. What, I, what I do in the paper is typically to look at the role of trade in the determination of long-run growth. And it even becomes more interesting because the recent literature on the topic has extensively looked at the distributional implications. Hmm. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a paper you know, that I came across in the course of the research. It was released in 2018 by Oxfam. And one interesting finding is that 82% of the increase in global wealth in 2017 accrued to the top 1%. Right. And not just that, the bottom 50% witnessed no increase at all. Mm -hmm. So that really struck me, you know, and you find that out of the many narratives that have emerged about the impact of globalization, the increasingly inequitable distribution of the gains from trade is one of the most are pervasive, and the social backlash from this has resulted in the rise of uh, nationalism and uh, protectionist policies that we've seen. I, I also find in the paper that even though technological progress, you know, continues to drive deeper market integration, mm. we seem to have also seen two different narratives about globalization. And this has led to curiosity on, on which one is actually true. So my paper argues that the answer depends on the underlying assumptions, you know, and the coherent system of ideas that, that we have uh, advanced. So, so the central argument in the paper really is that the simultaneous rise of economic nationalism and digital integration, you know, mm -hmm. have uh, introduced different complexities and force even when you look evidence-informed uh, uh, policy formulation and, and the central model, the data, the analysis tries to corroborate the view that the whole nexus, the trade inequality nexus, mm. is a complex web of interrelationships and they need to be disentangled before any policy uh, conclusions you know, can be drawn. Yeah, let me ask you on that, uh, Fred. So uh, we know that income inequality is a problem. Uh, it has continued to continue to rise. And um, I don't know if one can attribute that to globalization. You know, we can already look at, uh, you know, things like, uh, like you said, technological progress, you know, things like robotics, artificial intelligence, things like that have uh, made certain skills um, less relevant or even not useful. Uh, in such a situation, we are going to continue to find sort of a segregation, right, between skilled and non-skilled worker. That's one issue in my view. The other is, uh, you know, 27% uh, of the S&P's market cap today, S&P 500s, 
market cap today is tied up by six companies. Uh, we never been in a situation where you have a few companies with over $1 trillion in market cap. Typically, when you see that, you would think about market power, monopoly laws, things like that. Uh, but uh, we haven't really. And so, so if we let that go, it is going to, it's a bit like a gravity problem. You have one mass becoming a black hole <laughs> and it's going to eat everything else that might get any close to it. Uh, but, but I don't know if it is truly related to globalization though, uh, Fred. Uh, th that's, that's very interesting, Jill. You raise an important point and um, it, it gets me smiling. Yeah, so <laughs> because of the research, yeah, because of my research, I, I took the time to really um, look at a book by, by Branko, Branko Milanovic. Yeah. He wrote a book in 2016 mm -hmm. uh, titled Global Inequality and Globalization or something to that effect, you know. And in the book, you know, he again explains the dynamics of trade, globalization, and, and inequality. And the interesting thing in that book is that it argues that, of course, the periodic increases and falls that we have seen in inequalities over the years, they are often driven by factors like uh, technology, disease, war, education, and redistribution, you know. Mm with the conclusion that inequality will not actually grow in uh, perpetuity. So what does that mean? I mean, look at what COVID-19 has done. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a typical, uh, that's an example of how war and disease can trigger uh, inequality. So why globalization, of course, happens to be one of the contributors. It is not the sole uh, driver of, of inequality. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I, it's not correct, though. You can partly say that globalization uh, limits the effect of maybe the tools, the traditional tools that we have known, redistributive tools that can help to raise welfare and promote inclusive development. But again, policies have to recognize region-specific nuances. Right. So my, my conclusion is that trade may expose economies to international competition, which of course would then lead to disproportionate outcomes, which makes stabilization policies to result in uh, asymmetric shocks, which can reduce the size of the income, income uh, gap. Mm. So we can't blame trade or technology as the sole factors. It's a wide variety, but again, the devil is in the details. You have to look at regional specific issues before one can jump into uh, conclusions. Exactly, yeah. You know, I, I wonder, Fred, I don't have an answer to this, nor in your research, uh, but I wonder if there is, you know, if a thought experiment would be, suppose we have 100% globalization, meaning there are no countries, there are no boundaries anymore, all 8.5 billion people are together. So that's scenario one. On the other side, another extreme, you have zero globalization. Um, you know, essentially everybody is for himself or herself type situation. Um, I, 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 I wonder if in the middle, you know, sort of globalization is what we have today. 
uh, countries fight with each other. When you have a shock to the system, they try to uh, ring fence resources. They don't share information like we had in the case of the pandemic. Uh, that's all sort of in the middle of that spectrum where we have, you know, quote unquote globalization, but we don't really. Uh, and I wonder that is the worst outcome in the spectrum. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's an interesting um, uh, perspective, you know, it's an interesting perspective, but I also think that it is important to, to look back, you know, and, and look at history. Yeah. Because what you've seen in recent times, you know, in order to really make sense of what's going on, it's, it's key to, to, to look at history. Mm. You, you realize that, uh, let, let, me, let me go back a little bit. You, you, you find that the dominant model, you know, in 19th century uh, classical political economy was yeah. really based on the notion of uh, the constant wage law or constant wage share law, mm-hmm. which was propounded by, by uh, the English economist. Arthur Bowley, and that model supports the notion of a constant uh, labor compensation, Hmm. total output. But what have we found since the post-World War II expansion, you know, which heralded many changes in the patterns and uh, processes of capital accumulation, especially with uh, many of the highly dynamic uh, capitalist countries? And, And the other thing that can help the thought process is like the, the past two recessions in the U.S. Mm. I mean, they have brought about significant declines in labor's share of total income. Right. You see that economic activity has gradually moved from small labor-intensive businesses to large capital-intensive firms. Right. And, and, and while this shift has been one of the key drivers of income and wealth inequality over the years. I dare to also say that the fall in the share of labor in output is often not within a typical firm, as most people would think. Instead, what you see is that this has been a a steady and gradual reallocation in favor of the big capital intensive uh, firms. And that has led to the emergence of uh, superstar firms with huge market power in, in, in dominant and strategic sectors of the economy, which you rightly alluded to, you know, with the S&P and other uh, metrics that you saw today. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, but if you believe that the labor share of output will continue to decline because of advancement of technology, then it is really up to policymakers uh, to, to think about it systematically, right? One is thinking about monopoly laws and things like that. And the other is uh, really thinking about, you know, in my view, universal basic income, those types of policies, uh, because that, that trend, that train is going down the track and it's accelerating. And so, you know, the real question is how do you, how do you like you say, redistribute uh, from a policy perspective, but, you know, we're not, we're not spending a lot of time on that, I think. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, uh, it's fair. It's fair to say, and that's a very nice, um, it's a nice departure, you know, from the conversation so far, you know. So far, we've really been looking at the theories, the models, you know, and, uh, and the frameworks. But 
the question you just asked brings us to the whole notion of inclusive uh, development. Yeah. Maybe I can start by quickly explaining what inclusive development is. Yeah. It is a concept, you know, that really emphasizes the need to approach well-being from a much broader perspective. Mm. Because without doing so, it will be very difficult to focus on marginalized populations and those that are really excluded. Yeah. It will be hard to address wealth concentration and a polarized labor market where you see growth happening everywhere, but wages are disproportionately concentrated. And, and permit me to, to bring my organization into the conversation. Yeah. At the New York, City, New York City Economic Development Corporation, that is exactly our mission. Mm. So we are a nonprofit organization that creates shared prosperity across New York City. Our projects and initiatives are really about serving New Yorkers. We work with and for communities through every step of the economic development process. Yeah. And in the process, you know, EDC brings new and emerging industries to the five boroughs. We create spaces and facilities that they need to thrive, mm. to create jobs. So giving New Yorkers the tools and training to succeed in those jobs. We also do invest in the public infrastructure and neighborhood development projects that make the city a great place to live, work, and do business. So in summary, our work at uh, EDC is really about creating a sustainable and resilient future with shared prosperity and uh, opportunity for all New Yorkers. And what does that tell you? That tells you that beyond economic growth, inclusive development really underscores the need to consider the distribution of social goods like health, education, and infrastructure that people really need to move up the economic and social uh, ladder. And that, that's uh, to the extent that policy intervention you know, comes into this uh, conversation. So that really puts me uh, in that triangle of leveraging theories, models in the academy to see how we can uh, advance uh, the policy agenda to help uh, vulnerable people, marginalized uh, populations, minorities, women, and, and other uh, traditionally underrepresented communities. That's from a policy uh, perspective. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is well said, Fred. So um, sustainable and resilient uh, economy um, and inclusive development. Um, so that, you know, really that is the tool. And, you know, whatever New York does, it's a, it's a nice little scaled experiment. So if you are successful there, you can take that model and replicate that. Uh, Fred, uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. And uh, good luck with uh, everything that you're doing in New York. Thank you very much, Jill, for having me. Uh, good job you are doing there. Keep it up and to be part of the conversation. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye now.